If you've been gone for the last couple of weeks, welcome back. If you've been here, welcome me back. Um, <laughs> having been in Oklahoma and Kansas and Colorado and who knows where else, it's great to be back. And Sometimes I forget how great it is to be back. And I walked in this morning and instantly was talking to people and people I just was encouraged by and encouraging to see your friends and people you do ministry with. And it's just a great blessing the body of Christ is for us. And just really refreshed by that, and I wasn't even expecting it, so really thankful. Pray with me, if you would, before we get into this. Father, I am so thankful for the body of Christ and thankful that we can find encouragement from each other. And it's obvious that you and your perfect wisdom uh, didn't come up with a plan to save people and then have them be in isolation. And while it's good to get away and good to just be with family, it's also very good for us to spend time with brothers and sisters in Christ and in particular brothers and sisters that we do ministry with and we we share burdens with and we we struggle together and we pray together it's it's very good and it's a good gift from you and I know I'm reminded of that and I just want to thank you for that Lord thank you for the opportunity we've had to sing about the greatness of Christ and how we've been able to meditate upon the great work of our Savior And now as we turn to your word and we have a time of studying together, may it be a time where we are even deepened in our commitment to Christ and a time where we understand the gospel even better and when we find ourselves wanting to worship you with more devotion and fervency than ever before. Please, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, have this time be that kind of time. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't already turned there, if you'd turn to Romans 8, let's look at the first four verses, which we studied uh, a number of weeks ago. But let's, let's just remind ourselves about just how great salvation is and therefore how great Christ is. Romans 8 is a favorite chapter among Christians. Uh, if you've been a Christian very long at all, you probably already know this. And if you've been a Christian for a very long, uh, for a long time, you know this. Ask 10 people who are Christians, what's your favorite, most encouraging chapter in the entire Bible? And the majority of those people are going to say, Romans 8. Romans 8 is about assurance. I love Romans 8. It's all about how great Christ is and what he's done for us. Well, let's just be reminded, at least by looking at these first four verses, why we feel that way about Christ and even about Romans 8. Beginning in verse 1, we read, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And let's... Stop there, at least for now, and stand back and say, how great is that? It just doesn't get any better than that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when we stop and ponder that, as we did a number of weeks ago in some detail, it's absolutely amazing. When we take the time to go back in our minds to Romans 1 and Romans 2 and Romans 3 and then in Romans 5, Romans 7, we're learning about sin and we're learning about how all of us deservedly are under the condemnation of God. 
And then we learn about Christ and we learn about His work and Him living on our behalf and dying on our behalf and rising again on our behalf. And we learn about all that great gospel truth. And then we read this, there is therefore now no condemnation. It's absolutely awesome. It doesn't get any better than that. And Romans chapter 8 is so fantastic because it's all about that. It's all about how we can have assurance. We could have assurance before that we all deserve wrath. And now we have assurance that if we're in Christ, if we're united with Christ by faith, guaranteed no condemnation. Well, that's just the tip of the iceberg of Romans 8. I mean, that's the point, if you will. But then the rest of the chapter unpacks for us this multi-dimensional assurance that if you're really a Christian, you can really be sure. And so we're going to move on today in Romans chapter 8 and learn more about assurance, but we're going to be looking at a series of verses that are typically overlooked. Usually when people say they love Romans 8, they love Romans 8, 1 to 3. They love Romans 8, 28 and following. But these aren't the kind of verses people write songs about, the ones we're going to look at today. Okay? In part, it's because they're a little bit challenging to interpret but not over the top, in part because they challenge you and they challenge me as professing Christians. Because here's what happens. Romans 8, 1 to 3 especially, and so much in the Bible about assurance is about Christ's work. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me and our living other than it's, it's for us. But Romans 8, 5 to 13, which is what we'll look at today, says, yes, that's what Christ has done. And because He has done that, if you've truly trusted in Christ, it will show up in your life. It will show up in your conduct. It will show up in who you are. And by seeing that your life has been transformed, if you're really a Christian, you should get assurance from that too. So that's what we're going to see this morning. Built upon the foundation of what Christ has done that gives us assurance, Christ doesn't just or merely declare people righteous, as wonderful as that is, He also then, by the power of the Spirit of God, transforms people's lives. So we should get assurance from the work of Christ, and we should get assurance from the work of Christ in our lives. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And true believers should find assurance from that. Both are crucial. So Romans 8, 5 to 13, what we'll look at are three contrasts. Three stark contrasts that give assurance to believers. Three stark contrasts that give assurance to those who are truly Christians. And those contrasts are as follows. Number one, a mindset contrast. A mindset contrast. That's the first contrast that should give you assurance if you're really a Christian. And that's in verses 5 to 6. The second stark contrast that should give assurance is a relationship contrast. A relationship contrast. That's in verses 7 to 11. And the third contrast that should give you assurance of salvation, if you're really a Christian, is a perspective contrast. A perspective contrast, and that's in verses 12 to 13. So in three words, number one, mindset, contrast. Number two, relationship contrast. Number three, perspective contrast. All moving us 
if we're really Christians, to say, God has worked in my life. Christ has worked in my life. I'm not the same person I used to be. I'm so thankful that that He's done this in my life. Or, if you're not really a Christian, you you won't see the big contrast, and and you'll see that you don't have a basis for strong assurance, and, and that should cause you again to see the need to go to the cross to go to Romans 8, 1 to 3. Makes sense. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward, pretty profound stuff. And I can't wait to dive into it and get into it because we need to have this kind of assurance as well if we're really Christians. Let's look at that first contrast between believer and unbeliever designed to give you assurance. If you are a believer, that's the contrast of mindset. And what I mean by mindset is focus, what drives us, what moves us, where our hearts are. Look with me, if you would, at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, that is, according to their unsaved, unregenerate, sinful self, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, sinful things. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Pretty simple, right? A simple but profound contrast is what he's doing. There's a mindset contrast. If you are unsaved unregenerate, well, your focus, your attention, your mindset is on sinful things. If you're still dead in your sins, your passion is for sinful things. If you're still an unbeliever, your focus, what moves you, what causes you to to have your affections moved are sinful things is what he's saying. It's pretty straightforward, but the but then comes in, which is one of the most important words in the whole Bible, right? Right? But, in verse 5, those who live according to the Spirit, they have life. Based upon Romans 8, 1 to 3, that comes as a result of the work of Christ. Set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Simple contrast. Unbelievers think about unbeliever things. Believers think about believer things. That's it. I think it's helpful to step back and say, what are the things of the Spirit? What are the things of the Spirit? How, how can I have assurance? If, if I'm supposed to have my mind focused on things of the Spirit, then, then what are those things? And that's a good Bible study for us. Any of us can do. We can just stop and, and step back and say, okay, what does the Spirit do? What are the things of the Spirit? What is the Spirit preoccupied with? And first on my list was the Spirit is preoccupied with the glory of Christ. The Spirit is preoccupied with the glory of Christ The mindset of the Spirit, the thing of the Spirit at the top of my list is the glory of Christ. Remember John chapter 16, John 16, 14, Jesus is talking about the coming of the Spirit of God and He says regarding the Holy Spirit, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. So certainly one thing of the Spirit is the glory of the Son. Well, if I'm a Christian, my mind is set on the glory of the Son. I love to see Christ exalted. I love to see Him him made much of. I love to glorify Him. That's one of the things of the Spirit. And when I love to see that happen, it's giving me some assurance. You know what? I'm not the same old sinner that I used to be. Something's happened in my life. You know, it used to drive me crazy when everybody wanted to talk about Jesus, 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 Jesus. What are you, worshipers or something? You know, and then all of a sudden I, I become a Christian and now I join the ranks of freaks. <laughs> I want to talk about Jesus, 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 Jesus too because I now have a focus, a mindset on the things of the Spirit. And we know the Spirit is all about exalting the Son. Some of you have shared the same experience. 
There's been transformation. Something's happened. Different mindset. And you say, you know what? I have assurance because something's happened in my life that, it, that wasn't happening there before. Things of the Spirit, the list could go on. I'll just give you a few that I put down on my list. We have the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is obviously a thing of the Spirit, something He produces love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control, those kinds of things. And a lot of those things have to do with other people. That's a thing of the Spirit, you know, um, Self-control, loving other Christians, where I didn't have that desire to even be with other Christians before. All they did was talk about Jesus. And now I actually want to be with Christians, and I, and I find joy in that. And, and that's a thing of the Spirit. How about also in John chapter 16, verse 8? The Spirit also came into this world to convict of sin. You know, as an unbeliever, I didn't want to hear anything about sin because it just made me feel guilty. And now as a Christian, I actually am interested in sin and I, I like to talk about sin because it helps me to see how great Christ is. And you know what? One of the things of the Spirit is conviction of sin. One of the things of the Spirit is making sin clear. Well, you know, now I like to talk about sin. As demented and twisted as that is to an unbeliever, as a believer, it's significant to me and it's important. And I get assurance even by knowing that because that's a thing of the Spirit. Or how about the fact that the Bible is a thing of the Spirit, right? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Men moved by the Spirit of God, right? Wrote Scripture, I'm paraphrasing. You know, a thing of the Spirit is the Bible. It came from God. It came from the Spirit of God. Inspiration, 2 Timothy 3. And, and now all of a sudden, my mindset is different than it used to be, and I have an interest in biblical things. Huh. Assurance. I have an appetite. I have an appetite for truth. It's these kinds of things that are things of the Spirit. What's your mindset? What moves you? What, what, what is your attention focused upon? Well, if you're a Christian, it doesn't mean you won't focus on other things, but you certainly have a mindset on the things of the Spirit. And if you do, that's one source of assurance. You know what? You can say to yourself, I'm not the same person I used to be. I have a desire for these things. I have a desire for the things of the Spirit. Where did that come from? Because you're such a bright, intelligent person and you spent so much time thinking this through? No, remember, all of these things we're looking at today are all based upon and all grounded in Romans 8, 1 to 3, which is the work of Christ. So even this assurance ultimately points back to Him and He gets the glory and honor for it. Assurance comes by us seeing this contrast in mindset. Our desires are different. But it's all because of the work of Christ. I like 1 Corinthians 6.11 where he just gets into talking about all of these sinful lifestyles. If we can say for point of application, all of these sinful mindsets. And then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
See, he doesn't say, yeah, you used to be big sinners and doing all kinds of sinful things and having a sinful mindset, but then, you know, you really got your act together. Then you figured it out. He's saying, no, 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 no. You were washed, you were cleansed, you were justified, and how did that happen? By the Spirit of our God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, what we're seeing in these verses that have to do with our lives is always rooted and grounded back in the ultimate source, which is talked about in Romans 8, 1 to 3. It's the work of Christ. So I'll keep doing this and I'll keep going back and forth. We have to keep it in perspective, though. We are talking about our lives today and how our lives are supposed to be different. Our mindsets are supposed to be different. There's a huge contrast between old and new that gives us assurance. But that huge contrast comes as a result of the work of the Spirit of God, the work of Christ, which is what Romans 8, 1 to 3 talked about. And if we don't keep going back to there, we're going to start getting you know, egocentric and it was all about us and trying harder and more legalism and all kinds of stuff. It's the work of Christ is powerful and effective to bring about a work in people's lives. And where I can see the work in my life, I say, you know what? I I must be a Christian because of what Christ has done for me. Well, building upon this mindset is a reminder of the different outcomes. Look with me, if you would, at verse 6. We're still talking about number 1, the first contrast. But then he says in verse 6, to set the mind on the flesh on sin, is death. Well, okay, that, that's, that's a bad outcome. But then he says, but, that great word, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And we see the obvious contrast. Now, what we don't do is take that out of context and say, therefore, the way to have eternal life is work on having the right mindset. No, 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 keep it in context. It is true that if your mindset is on sinful things, it leads to death, spiritual death. And if your mindset is on the right things, it leads to life. But we're not talking about work salvation and Paul forgetting about everything he's already talked about. Tied to the cross, tied to the work of Christ, tied to the work of the Spirit of God, there is a change that happens. And you, unlike the unbeliever, if you're a believer, have your mindset on the things of the Spirit. And that leads to life. So what's so interesting about this is He really does care about your life. But your transformed life comes from the work of Christ. But your transformed life does come. And if it doesn't come, how clear could He be in verse 6? To set the mind on the flesh is death. So He's giving great assurance to those who should have assurance. This kind of goes back to Romans 6, which we won't take the time to go back to, but he he talked about these kinds of things back then. So if you're a Christian, that means you have a different mindset. You have different passions. You have different things that, that that, that move you, different desires. And that should give you assurance. As the old saying goes, I'm not who I want to be but I'm not who I was. And when I look back and look at my life, I think something's happening. And I'm encouraged. And and I know that it's not coming from me, it's coming from Christ. That's how it is. We should find encouragement from that. 
Now let's move on to a second contrast designed to give us assurance. I suppose we could say or not. And that's a relationship contrast. And this is a sharp contrast between people who are not Christians and people who are Christians in their relationship to God. Okay, so here's what's going to happen. We're going to see unbelievers and they have a horrible relationship with God. And that was you and that was me before you were a Christian, if you are a Christian now. And he wants us to see just how bad that was. And then you see your good relationship now and you say, wow, I have assurance. I had a horrible relationship with God, but then by by the work of Christ and what He has done and He's transformed my life, now I have a good relationship with God. I have assurance. And He gets the glory for it. Let's go ahead and look at the unconverted first. Verse 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh... No doubt the unconverted mind, the mind that is focused on sinful things, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. The Greek word for hostile there, by the way, is sometimes translated enemy. In Luke chapter 23, verse 12, it's translated enemy. Herod and Pilate are enemies. Think about that. The mind that is set on the flesh, the unconverted mind, is hostile to God is the enemy of God, we could translate it. That's pretty intense. That's you and your unsaved life before you were converted, if you are converted. It was no small thing. Enemy status. It's hardcore. I remember listening to that old, kind of crusty Presbyterian, John Gershner. And he would talk about this verse when he talked about unbelievers. Ready for the impression? With his spent voice, he sounded like he smoked like 25 packs a day or something. I don't know. Probably never smoked. But his voice, and he would be talking like this. And he would say, remember, you're the enemy. Gives you goosebumps, huh? And I would get reconverted every time I heard the tape. (laughs) Now, seriously, he was right. The unbeliever is the enemy of God. Sure enough. And I lived most of my life as the enemy of God. And you lived your life up until the point where you were converted, if you are converted, as the enemy of God. says right there, hostile to God. You could translate it if you wanted to, the enemy of God. Now, now we're kind of seeing why people don't write songs using these verses. <laughs> you know, we focus on Romans 8, 28, and we focus on Romans 8, 1, but we don't usually focus on Romans 8, 7. But I've got to remind you, the whole chapter is about assurance. I've got to remind you that God in His perfect wisdom thinks it's helpful for you and helpful for me, even as Christians, to remember where we've come from and we've come from being enemies of God. So that when we have that locked in our minds and we see that we're not anymore by virtue of the work of Christ, we say, this is a great thing and I have assurance. And so believers don't have a problem looking at these things. Well, then he gives the reason for the hostility, and this just gets maybe a little bit more trippy. 
Verse 7 goes on to say, for it does not submit to God's law. Let's talk about that for a minute. Mindset on the flesh, sinful things, is hostile to God. What brings about hostility? What brings about enemy status? Well, he tells us right there, not submitting to God's law. Now, this is so easy that all the kids here can understand it. We make it complex. I mean, it's kind of like we think, who is this, this God think he is, you know? How in the world could God say that as an unbeliever, I was his enemy? I was hostile to him. And then that, how does that work? Well, he explains, for it does not submit to God's law. Because there's not submitted, submission to God's law, God says, enemy. God says there's hostility here. And still, in our sophistication, we're like, well, where does he get off saying things like that? It doesn't even really make sense. It actually does make sense. If there's a God, just think about that, right? (laughs) If there's a God, okay? If there's a God and He creates, He doesn't create other gods, he, He creates... Creatures, just let's make it profound, and he has rules, and he's God, just to remind you of that. (laughs) This God who is God, which means he acts like God, makes rules, which is consistent with being God, and he has creatures, and he says, do what I say, and we don't. That's hostility. Because now we're not treating God like he's God. We're treating ourselves like we're God. I mean, it doesn't get any more intense as far as rebellion is concerned. It's as if to say, how dare you act like you're God and I'm not. Right? It's really pretty simple. And now all of a sudden, for thinking simply, hostility with God makes a lot of sense. If we just let God be God and not... I dream of genie or something weird. He's God. God. And we've said, no. There's hostility. It gets even worse because it says in verse 7, indeed, it cannot. That's saying a lot. The mindset in the flesh, the unbelieving mind, is hostile to God because it doesn't submit to the law of God. In fact, not only does it not submit to the law of God, it can't submit to the law of God. And you don't get the idea of, oh, those poor sinners. They try, but they can't. That's not the idea. The idea is everything we've been learning from Romans and now we have enemy status. It's not that they, oh, those poor sinners, they can't. It's they're so sinful and they're so rebellious that they're so far gone, they can't even do this. And I remind you that this is describing the people he's writing to, professing Christians. This is describing you. This is describing me in an unconverted state. It cannot. It's because of verses like verse 7 that I believe in what theologians call the doctrine of total inability. How could you not? 
It says cannot. Anybody want to write a course about this yet? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. You know, total inability. <laughs> How's it going to go? <laughs> but again, humor aside, I remind you, it's in the context of assurance because God really wants to see how bad it was. And because of the great righteous work of Christ, it's not this way anymore. And we probably should move ahead so that we can be encouraged. Verse 8 then, it's not encouraging yet, but we're getting close. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, an unbeliever cannot please God. There it is, pretty straightforward. That gives me no assurance whatsoever other than the fact that I can't. And then the converted. This is why it's in here. We were supposed to see all that. Then verse 9, you, however. So we have this relationship contrast. That was you and your relationship to God. And now, by virtue of the work of Christ and the Spirit, you, he says, however. (laughs) You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But do notice even that negative statement at the end. If he's talking about believers, you do have the Spirit of Christ, and that means you do belong to Him. This is awesome. Then verse 10, but if Christ is in you, and He is based upon verse 9, if you're a believer, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. I mean, this is awesome stuff. Yeah, that was who you were, but you know what? Now, by virtue of Christ and His righteousness, I think that's what it's talking about in verse 10, because of righteousness, that would be Christ's righteousness. We learned about that in Romans 8, 1 to 3. We learned about that in Romans 3, verse 22. The Spirit is the one who applies Christ's righteousness. That's Romans 8, 1 to 3. Now, because of Christ and His righteousness, now because of the Spirit's work in applying His righteousness to you, now, 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 No longer enemy status. No longer incapable. In fact, even go back to verse 7 with me if you would. And I don't think it's out of bounds to to look at all that positively now if we have trusted in Christ, if we're believers. Go back to verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh... Let's read it this way. For the mind that is not set on the flesh but on the Spirit is no longer hostile to God or is at uh, friendship with God instead of enmity. Verse 7 goes on. For it does not submit to God's law. How about now we actually can do what God says by by the power of the Spirit? Indeed it cannot. Oh no, indeed now it can. Those who are, in verse 8, in the flesh cannot please God. Well, let's reverse that now. We're not in the flesh. We're in the Spirit. We actually can. And my head is spinning saying, wow, Christ is great to bring this about in my life. And and, and I have a basis for assurance now and I didn't before. My relationship was that and now it's this. Wow. This is fantastic. And I love it in verse 11. As great as it is to not be under condemnation, he even gives us, you know, like bonus round benefits here. Did you see that at the end of verse 11? We'll also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He's talking about our physical bodies, I take it. Okay, no, no more condemnation, so that's spiritual status, so we don't have to go to hell ultimately for eternity, as we learned about earlier. But now he's saying, not only that, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead 
is going to give life to your mortal body. And you kids don't think that's very cool. But the older you get, the better it looks. <laughs> you know, when I get out of bed this morning and limp to the bathroom, I like verse 11, you know. And on a more serious note, when you watch people that you love and care about suffer one physical challenge after another physical challenge after another, another physical challenge, and the older you get, the worse it gets because you now know more people who are getting older. This really is good. The best thing is no condemnation. But you know what? It's not only that. (laughs) He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Isn't that great? (laughs) It's awesome. And amidst our ailments, and we're going to get there in Romans chapter 8, even the creation is longing and waiting for Christ to return and fix things. And so amidst our limping and ailing and suffering, we say, the ultimate solution here is not the new knee that the doctor can give me. I'm thankful for that, right? And the providence of God. But the ultimate solution is the promise that the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is going to raise my body unto newness of life. And I get two new knees and hips and shoulders and everything. And we're thankful for that. I have assurance even of a new body. It's good. And it's because of Christ again. Now, before we move on to this last contrast, and we can handle it rather simply, there's one thing that I've been remiss of, probably about a hundred things, but one thing I'm willing to admit, there's one thing we need to talk about before we move on. So we're getting these radical contrasts, believer, unbeliever, different mindset, different relationship. There's a word that's come up in these last verses that I haven't emphasized. And I need to emphasize them, and and I think you do too in your own mind. Let's re-look at verses 9, 10, and 11, and you'll see what I'm talking about just by way of reading emphasis. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if... Christ is in you. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If, if, and if. It's an important word. There's no mistaking the emphasis because he didn't just say it once. That would have been enough. But multiple times, if and if and if. When we're talking and teaching and thinking about the doctrine of assurance or the reality of Christians having assurance of salvation, there is a place in our conversation and in our thinking for the word if. Because it's, in other words, if you are really a Christian. 
You should be sure, 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 sure. You can be sure. Assurance is so awesome. Romans 8, I mean, by the time we get to the end of Romans 8, it's just about ready to take off like a plane. It's so exhilarating and awesome. And we, we should see it that way. But there is a place in that conversation for the word, if. And I would suggest to you that God knows what he's talking about. And that we should learn from him. And so as we're thinking and as we're talking, if there's never a time in that conversation when we're talking about assurance where someone mentions the elephant in the room, so to speak, if you're really a Christian, we're probably, no, we are remiss of our duties. We we have a partially informed perspective of salvation and assurance. What we want to have is a biblically informed perspective about assurance. It doesn't mean we have to have if be in every sentence. If isn't even the emphasis in Romans 8. But it's there. Because of all people who shouldn't have assurance of salvation, it's people who aren't really converted. And so I just encourage you in ministry, encourage you in your own life, encourage you with your children, God talks about if, and we should too. It doesn't take away at all. In fact, a horrible, awful thing is the reality that is a reality that there are people who are sure of their salvation, and they're not Christians. You can read about them. Jesus talks about them in Matthew chapter 7. Okay, back to the assurance side of things. Final contrast between believers and unbelievers designed to give the true believer assurance is a perspective contrast. So we've seen the the mindset contrast, the relationship contrast. Now there's a perspective contrast. And we see this in verses 12 and 13. Let's wrap up on this. Verse 12 says, So then, brothers... We are debtors. And I'm just going to stop for a moment so we can translate, interpret a little bit before we move on. So then, brothers, we are debtors. He's talking to people who are now... He's saying, if you're a Christian, you're a a debtor. Interestingly enough, the Greek word is used three times in the New Testament. And the ESV translation that I'm preaching from translates it, obviously, debtor, because that's here. Translates it, secondly, offenders... And thirdly, O, as in O-W-E. We are debtors, or we are offenders, or we are owers, is kind of the background of the word. It's also used in Romans 15, 27, and Luke chapter 13, verse 4. New American Standard translates it obligation, which is a good way to translate it. A very literal way, though, is debtor. The idea for a synonym, obligation, is helpful. The background of the word is basically somebody who breaks the law and, as we might say, owes a debt to society. It's the idea. He says, brothers, those of us who have been redeemed, right? We are debtors. We have an allegiance. We have an obligation. 
Hold that thought for a second. We'll pick it up again. So then, brothers, we are debtors, verse 12, not to the flesh. That is not to sin. We're not indebted to sin. We don't have an obligation to sin. Read Romans 6. To live according to the flesh. That's, we, we don't have an obligation to do that. We're, we're Christians. We belong to Christ. That makes no sense whatsoever. You're, that shouldn't be your perspective. You don't, you don't live in debt to sin. That, that makes no sense at all because you belong to Christ. Verse 13 then says, For if you live according to the flesh, according to your sinful desires, you will die. I mean, that's Romans 6.23. That's, he's saying, you know, you should learn that in Awana, right? I mean, that's just basic, fundamental. You're not a debtor to sin. You're not a debtor to keep doing that. And you don't owe something to sin, so you keep living in sin. Because by the way, you keep living in sin, you're going to die. And I think he's talking about spiritual death. You know, he's talking to professing Christians. A true believer's life is not one that does that. I like what James Montgomery Boyce said about this. May I put it bluntly? Paul is saying that if you live like a non-Christian, dominated by your sinful nature rather than living according to the Holy Spirit, you will perish like a non-Christian because you are a non-Christian. In a passage about assurance... But not everybody should be assured. He says in verse 13, But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He's giving you this perspective contrast. If it's all about sin for you, it'll lead to death. If your focus is on the things of the Spirit and righteousness and submission to God, you will live. No doubt he's not teaching salvation by trying harder. He's not teaching salvation by trying to fight sin. But all of this goes back up to verses 1 to 3, goes back up to the work of Christ. And if, the, if Christ has, has done all of that for you and you are a believer, then you have the Spirit of God in you, empowering you. Again, Romans 6, you died with Christ and you died to sin and then you rose with Christ and you rose unto righteousness. That's Romans 6. But he's being pretty sober here at the end. In a chapter about assurance. Making the point, brothers, we're not debtors to sin. Sin didn't die for us. Sin didn't redeem us. It makes absolutely no sense to live like it did. If you're a Christian, you see Christ as your Redeemer, the one who gave Himself up for us to redeem us. You're a debtor to Christ. You serve Him. You're devoted to Him. You love Him. He's everything to you. Ephesians 5.2 says, Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. We are debtors to Christ, not debtors to sin. We should talk a little bit about what this debtor doesn't mean. And I can make it simple and just say, it's clearly not, or it would be a violation of everything we've been learning in Romans, clearly not by saying... 
by implying we're debtors to Christ, that somehow we're going to pay Him back. It can't be done. As a matter of fact, He did what He did by grace. It was a free gift not to be paid back, right? But nevertheless, He says, we're not debtors to sin, implying we are debtors to Christ. The idea being, He redeemed you. He bought you out of the slave market of sin. Now you belong to Him. In fact, a great passage you could write in the margin of your Bible that would maybe even help you interpret this passage, this debtor idea, is 1 Corinthians 6.20. You just want to listen to 1 Corinthians 6.20. It's helpful where the Apostle Paul writes, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. It's the same idea. You were bought by Christ, so glorify Christ in your body. Live for Him. In that sense, you're a debtor. You belong to Him. That's the perspective change that happens in the life of a true believer. The true believer, by virtue of the work of Christ, being applied by the Spirit of Christ, empowered by the Spirit as well, used to have the perspective of devoted to sin. Now, only by God's grace perspective, I'm devoted to Christ because He is my everything as my Redeemer. And where that is true, where that happens... There's a basis for assurance. You say, God has done this in my life. I used to be a debtor to sin, and I sure showed it. And now I'm a debtor to Christ. I see Him as everything. And while I'm not as devoted to Him as I certainly would want to be, and certainly one day will be, I see it in my life. And that's a basis for assurance. We've got to remember that we belong to Christ if we're Christians. So we want to serve Him and honor Him. And that gives us assurance that we truly do belong to Him. One more time. Please remember, all of this is flowing out of Romans 8, 1-3. The objective outside of you having nothing to do with you, work of Christ. But that then leads to something the subjective, experiential, in-my-life transformation that comes as a result of union with Christ, both are designed to give assurance. I look to Christ and I find that there's great assurance. Romans 8, 1-3, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Thank you, Lord. But not only that, we see this empowerment by the Spirit as a result of the work of Christ now in my life. And now I see I have, I have a different perspective. And I have a different relationship to God. And not only that, I have a different mindset. And I say, God, thank you for assuring me on the subjective level as well. And typically what happens in people's lives is we get one and not the other. If you only have the subject of what we're talking about today, you're, you're just aiming that ship of yours toward legalism, self-righteousness. But if you only have the objective outside of you and you don't do what God does, which is connect the two together, you're aiming that ship of your life toward licentiousness, toward license, toward do whatever you want to do because you know what? It's all based upon Christ anyway. And for those people, our passage today is very, very important. Very important for all of us. Both are emphasized. 
both come from God. Lest you forget, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, who gets the credit? It's Him. Where did all this, this mindset, perspective, relationships, change stuff come from? It comes from Him. But it does come. It does come. Romans 8. There's lots of it left. And I can't wait to keep moving our way through Romans chapter 8. It's awesome. And it's all awesomely designed to keep running us back to the work of Christ, the things of the Spirit, so that we'll be impressed with Him. So may we live sure lives, if we're Christians, for the glory of Christ. And let's pray toward that end. Father, thank You for this morning and this time that we've had to talk about these crucial matters. It's such an important matter, this matter of assurance. And so I pray for the men and women who are here today, including myself, and for the boys and for the girls, for ministry leaders, that we would begin thinking clearly, if need be, about this matter. And that we would take all of Romans 8 and not just part of it. And Lord, for those who don't have a basis for assurance because they've never truly embraced Christ as Savior, Lord, I pray for those folks that they might, by Your grace, repent of their sin and trust in Christ and Christ alone so that they too can have a basis for assurance based upon the work of Christ and and the work of Christ even in their lives as a result. Do great things in our midst. Do great things in the city. Do great things in this world. And keep impressing us with just how magnificent You are as our God. In Jesus' name, amen.